0: Well, if you were here last week, uh, you know that we uh, began looking at John uh, chapter 18. And uh, John chapter 18 uh, discusses Jesus' arrest, the betrayal and his arrest. And what we saw last week was that Jesus and his disciples, uh, his, uh, the 11 now, the 11 apostles that are left, they've finished... Uh, in the upper room. Jesus has finished praying the high priestly prayer for them. And then John says that they crossed the Kidron Valley, that they made their way up the slopes of the Mount of Olives, and that they entered a walled garden. Uh, The other gospels tell us it was called Gethsemane, which means oil press. It was a garden probably owned by a wealthy supporter who lent that garden to Jesus and his apostles, uh, four times of refreshment and and rest and probably uh, recalling and teaching and what went on that day, uh, times for prayer. And Jesus, knowing that Judas would know that he was going there, headed there. And as I pointed out last week, Jesus was going there not to escape as we may have seen, uh, if we were looking at this with the naked eye, but, but actually to embrace uh, the arrest and the trial and the crucifixion, for that was what he came here to do. Well, uh, today's text continues the, the drama of that night. Our text this morning is John chapter 18, beginning at verse 12. We're going to go through verse 27. So if, as always, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open it up, and follow along as I read, and then keep it open as I preach, and uh, we'll be looking back at specific verses. If you don't have a Bible with you but would like to follow along, if you look in the seat in front of you underneath, you'll find uh, a Bible there, and our text is on page 904 of that Bible. John chapter 18, beginning at verse 12. It says, so the band of soldiers and their captain." And the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First, they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who would advise the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, Saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it, and at once a rooster crowed. Verse 12 reminds us of who this group is. John told us earlier, and he was an eyewitness, that this group was comprised of Roman soldiers. They were in town because it was the Passover, and there were Roman soldiers available at that time. They were there to put down any kind of riots, and no doubt they really couldn't care less about who this Jesus was. They were just attending this arrest to make sure that it didn't get out of hand. But nonetheless, Judas had them with him. Primarily, though, he had with him What you see here are the officers of the Jews. They represented the Sanhedrin. They were the temple police. They were the ones who really wanted Jesus. And, of course, leading the way and showing them where he was, was Jesus' betrayer, Judas, one of the twelve. Now, verse 12 tells us that they went ahead and bound Jesus and arrested him. Now, that sounds pretty simple and and basic and uh, really kind of uh, a normal day's work for police. But let's consider for a moment what these men, all of them, had just witnessed. Before we consider the fact that they bound Jesus and arrested him and led him off bound to this trial, let's consider that all of these men All of the Jews, the temple police, all of the Roman soldiers, and and Judas himself had all witnessed again Jesus both declaring himself to be God in the flesh and demonstrating himself to be God in the flesh. They all witnessed it. They heard first this declaration. Go back to last week's sermon. Remember when they came to arrest him and Jesus stepped forward and said, who are you looking for? And they said, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. We're looking for this man, Jesus, a a rabbi, a a teacher who grew up in the town of Nazareth. And Jesus' answer was far more than simply acknowledging, yeah, that's me. Jesus' answer, as I talked about last week, was, I am. Over and over again throughout Jesus' life, he had declared himself to be God. You know, you often hear, I've heard it many times in my life, Jesus never claimed to be God. Well, anyone who says that doesn't know the Gospels. If you understand what Jesus is saying, he claims to be God many times. In fact, they knew that he was claiming to be God. That's why they wanted to stone him for blasphemy. Jesus claimed to be God in many ways, at many times. And here at the end, before his arrest, he says it again. He makes it clear I am the I am from the burning bush. So they heard the declaration, but remember the declaration was in some mysterious way combined with divine power. That when he said, I am, John, again, who was an eyewitness to this, saw, said that every man there, the Jews, the temple police, the Roman soldiers, drew back and fell to the ground. So not only did they hear Jesus proclaim to be God, but even the Roman soldiers, who probably had no idea what I am meant, nonetheless had something happen to them, which threw them to the ground. And again, I, I said last week, it just seems like Jesus is giving a preview of the final judgment. When at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. They felt, they heard him declare himself to be God, and they felt it in their bodies. But furthermore, they saw him demonstrate that he was God. You know, it's one thing to claim to be God. I'm sure a lot of people throughout history have claimed to be God. It's another thing to back it up. Well, Jesus not only claimed it, but Luke tells us that uh, he, as John did, he, Luke tells us that one of Jesus's apostles, we know from John it was Peter, cut off the ear of the high priest servant. John again tells us his name was Malchus. So here's this man who was coming here to arrest Jesus, and one of Jesus's apostles cuts his ear off. John doesn't tell us, but Luke includes this little bit of information, that Jesus said no more of this, and he touched his ear and healed him. Now, I don't know how he did this. I mean, maybe he picked the ear up that was on the ground and placed it on the man's head and immediately fused the ear to his head. I don't know the way, the way uh, Luke is describing it here. It almost sounds like he placed his hand on what used to be an ear and created an ear out of whole cloth. I don't know how he did it. But either way, What Jesus does here is something only God can do. Only God, the creator, has the power to create matter out of nothing. It was God who created humans in the first place out of dust. And Jesus touches this man's ear, which has just been hacked off, and instantly creates a new one. And these men saw this. Now, can you imagine... What went through these men's minds that night, after first being thrown to the ground by a power, and then secondly, seeing this man instantly create an ear out of nothing? And if that wasn't enough, they saw a kind of love that this world rarely, if ever, sees it wasn't as though the ear that Jesus healed was the ear of Peter. I mean, it would have been one thing if Peter stepped forward and one of the Romans hacked his ear off. And just prior to being arrested, Jesus puts Peter's ear back on. No, in fact, Jesus heals the ear of a man who is there to harm him. He loves his enemy. The point is this, if any of these men up till that point had not heard him declare himself to be God and had not seen him demonstrate himself to be God, then here at the arrest, they all saw it. They all heard it and they all saw it with their own eyes. And incredibly, it didn't stop them. Think about that. Some of the guys brought that up at the men's study on Tuesday. How could you go forward with this? After seeing what you saw, Who in their right mind would still go and bind this guy and arrest him? And yet, that's what, in fact, they did. Why did they do it? Well, John doesn't tell us why. But friends, that's what sin is. That's what sin does. Sin, you see, sin, we don't like to talk about sin in society any longer. But the Bible talks about sin a lot. And the Bible says that sin is not just an honest mistake. It's not just making a right-hand turn when you should have made a left-hand turn. The Bible says that sin is willful rebellion against God. Against a God, furthermore, who has clearly demonstrated and revealed himself to every man, woman, and child in this world. Sin is an active rebellion. And what we see here in this arrest, at the very least, it could be more, but at the very least, it is sin. It attests to the level to which sin can go. Jeremiah seventeen nine: The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Well, John doesn't tell us this he moves on to the trial. But Matthew and Mark tell us that when what Jesus did didn't stop the arrest, when these soldiers and these men with torches and clubs came forward and bound Jesus and hauled him away, that at that instant all of his apostles fled the scene, that they scattered and Jesus was left to face this angry mob alone. What is the loneliest that you have ever felt in your life? Some of you probably instantly know. There, there is a time in your life when, when it's very acute to you that, that you felt the loneliest you've ever felt. I wonder if anyone has ever felt more alone than Jesus felt at that moment Jesus had poured himself into these men for three years and in his time of greatest need all of his friends fled and everywhere he looked he saw nothing but anger and hatred and people who wanted to do him harm Surrounded by his enemies, Psalm 69 says, I looked for pity, but there was none. I looked for comforters, but I found none. That was Jesus. And they bound him and led him off. Now all the gospel accounts tell us that Jesus was taken to Caiaphas. And John tells us that as well. He he says uh, that it was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die. That's in verse 14. And and he also says that later he was taken further to Caiaphas. But John specifies here something that the other gospel accounts don't specify. He, He specifies that Jesus was first taken to Annas. First taken to Annas. Now why? Why this man Annas? Well, Annas had been the high priest. Annas had been the high priest. He had been the high priest for for only uh, a few years, and then he was deposed by the Romans. The Romans didn't like someone to be high priest for very long because they didn't want any one person other than themselves to have much power and authority, and so they deposed this man, and they replaced him, eventually, with his son-in-law, Caiaphas. But in in the eyes of the Jew of that day, Annas was still the legitimate power. He was still considered by many to be the real high priest. They didn't consider what the Romans did to be legitimate. And uh, in fact, you find this in Luke chapter 3, when Luke is talking about the time when, when Jesus and John the Baptist are there. He specifically says, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. He includes Annas as almost like a twin high priest. And then in in Acts chapter 4, he actually just calls Annas the high priest and doesn't even mention Caiaphas at all. One New Testament scholar says this, the high priesthood of the Old Testament was considered for life. And such depositions as the Romans carried out were not lawful. So Annas was in all probability the real power in the land whatever the legal technicalities so john gives us this interesting historical insight that the other gospels don't give us that jesus was kind of taken before the real power of that day now verse 14 is interesting because when he mentions caiaphas he actually refers us back to an earlier chapter in the gospel of john to john chapter 11 he says now remember reader It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. When you go back and you look at John chapter 11, what you realize is that Jesus has just done his seventh and greatest sign. You remember the first half of the Gospel of John we call the book of signs. It's where Jesus uh, does sign after sign after sign, these signs pointing to the truth of him being God, being the Son of God, being the Messiah. And in John chapter 11, Jesus has just raised Lazarus, a man who has been in the tomb for four days, from the dead. And then what we find in John chapter 11 is that uh, there are some people there who witness this raising from the dead. Some of them believe in Jesus and go to him as Lord and some of them reject him still and they run straight to the Jewish authorities and tell them what has happened. And what we find then in John chapter 11 is that, is that this, this council comes together. The Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and the Pharisees, they gather together. And John says that as, they, as they're gathering with this council, they're saying to themselves, what are we to do? What are we to do? Now, if you didn't have any history with these guys, if you hadn't read what had been going on and the conflict that Jesus had been having with these, you and even if you have been reading that, you may think that as they're gathering together and they're saying, what are we to do? That what they're saying is, this man has just raised a man from the dead. Maybe we ought to reconsider how we first considered him. Maybe we ought to fall at his feet and call him Lord. Maybe he is the Messiah. That could be what they're saying. What are we to do? When in fact, when you look at the grammar here, the real question that they're asking is, what have we really been doing? The real question they're saying is, what have we really been accomplishing? You see, they they had been trying since, since day one to, to debate Jesus and to belittle him and to entrap him and to question him and, and all these ways to, to stop him to somehow get him to stop what he's doing. They've even tried arresting him, and he's he's gotten out of their clutches time and again. None of it had worked. Jesus was still healing people, still casting out demons, and even then, with Lazarus, raising the dead. And so they are questioning their effectiveness of the tactics to get rid of him. That's what they were doing. Now let that sink in for a moment. This meeting was due to the fact that Jesus had just raised someone from the dead. And rather than rethink their original assessment of him, rather than repent and fall at his feet and worship him, instead they berate themselves for not having done a good enough job to stop him yet. They all recognized his power that's what they were saying we can't let this man go on and do these things they recognize his power but it didn't stop them why well friends that's what sin is see sin is rebellion it's willful rebellion against a god who has clearly demonstrated himself And just as happened with the temple police and the Roman soldiers who witnessed what they saw and went forward with the arrest, so has happened with the Sanhedrin and the chief priests and the Pharisees. They go forward with plans to kill him. The sin ran so deeply that they vehemently denied Jesus even in the face of overwhelming evidence. I I quoted Hugh Martin last week. I'll quote him again. He says something interesting. He says, why then do they not consider whether Jesus is the Christ? Again, they're considering their tactics. Why aren't they considering whether he is the Christ? He says something interesting here. He says, alas, the terrible truth must come out that they fear he is. They fear being confronted with a sufficient proof that he whom they hate is the Messiah. What an interesting thought. Is that you this morning? As you sit here this morning, what about you? Have you rejected Jesus, not because you have found the evidence for Jesus lacking, but because you can't bear the thought That he just might be exactly who he claimed to be. Are you afraid of what it might mean for you? Are you afraid of what it might mean for your life? If in fact Jesus is who you presume he very well might be if you look into it further. Are you afraid that your life might just get harder if you fall down at his feet and call him Lord? Are you afraid that you might gain new enemies, that this world and this world's powers might turn against you? The Sanhedrin were concerned about that. Why were they so concerned to put Jesus down? It's because they said, if we let this man go on, we will lose our power and our prestige with the Romans. They were willing to throw aside all evidence to the contrary and kill the Messiah so that they didn't lose some worldly favor with the Roman Empire. Well, you know you're right. Jesus says that if you embrace him as Lord, you will lose a lot. He says you will lose the love of this world. He says you will lose the respect of this world. He says that you will lose the love of friends and family members. But he promises that what you will gain is your soul. He asks you, and I ask you this morning, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his soul? You see, just when you think that their sin can't get any worse, as this council is saying, what have we been accomplishing? And they're pulling their hair out. The high priest of all people, Caiaphas, the high priest steps in, he speaks up, and he says, you know nothing at all. And you could probably hear a pin drop. Caiaphas says, what have you been accomplishing? Nothing. This man has continued to go on, and so now this man has to die to save us. John says in verse 14 here that Caiaphas said this for expediency's sake. For expediency's sake, Caiaphas, the high priest that year, proposed that they do the most evil thing that has ever been done in the history of this world. The murder of the Lord of glory. The only sinless one who has ever lived. And it was to this man Caiaphas that Jesus would eventually be taken. And so understand that when Jesus came here that night for this trial, their mind had already been made up. This was no fair trial. They had already decided that Jesus had to die, as we will see. Meanwhile, in verses 15 and 16, we see that there is another trial happening, if you will. Not inside the courtroom, but out, inside, out in the courtyard. We see that Simon Peter, as all the Gospels say, has made his way into this courtyard of the high priest. He initially scattered with everybody else, but probably for love, Probably because he, he, it pained him so much to, to leave his Lord, he followed at a distance and made his way into the courtyard. Only John gives us the, the, the inside knowledge that he made his way into the courtyard because another disciple who was friends of the high priest allowed him entrance. Otherwise, Peter wouldn't have been able to get in there. Now, we don't know who this other disciple is. John doesn't name him. Uh, it's anybody's guess. Scholars are split. Some of them believe this other disciple is, in fact, John, the author of the gospel. Uh, There are reasons for that. He doesn't name his name. John never names his name. Uh, As well, uh, John, we see, knows little insights that the other gospel writers don't give us, like that the high priest's servant's name was Malchus. Uh, So he seems to have some inside knowledge. However, other other scholars say, well, it, it couldn't be John because... Uh, no fisherman would know the high priest that well, because if you look at this word, know that the high priest knew him or that he knew the high priest, it's more than just a distant acquaintance. This implies some kind of more intimate knowledge, almost like a friendship. And so those scholars say, no, it probably wasn't John. It was probably one of Jesus's disciples, like a guy like Nicodemus, who followed Jesus and was his disciple, but also had these higher connections. It doesn't really matter. In the end, it just matters that Peter was allowed into this courtyard. Now, once in the courtyard, this servant girl who manned the door saw Peter. Now, she already knew that this other disciple, uh, this other man, whoever he was, was also a disciple of Jesus. And so it seems as though She's asking a question. I'm not sure how much of an interrogation this was. Uh, she looks at at him and uh, actually states it in this way. She she doesn't say, "Are you one of his disciples?" She says, "You're not also one of this man's disciples, are you?" She already knows this this other man is. So so she's just asking, like you're not also, along with this man, one of this guy's disciples, are you? It it was probably the easiest question that, that Peter would get all night. But notice that her question assumed a no reply. She said, you're not also one of this man's disciples, are you? Sometimes I think that we take a look at this servant girl, And we wonder, how could Peter have been so scared of her? I mean, after all, he just stood up to an army and wielded a sword. And now he's cowering before a servant girl? Well, I'm not so sure that he was scared of her. But you see, Satan made it so easy for him on that first denial. Think of how easy it was. I mean the ball was set perfectly on the tee. This was no rough lie. He, he didn't have to argue any theological points. He didn't have to mouth the words, Caesar is Lord. There was no real direct confrontation about who he was. It was just a simple inquiry that already assumed know. All he had to do was to get past the servant girl and just remain incognito the rest of the time is just quickly say, no, I'm not, and walk on. And that's what he did. He said, I'm not. And then John said he makes his way over to the charcoal fire and tries to blend in and stay out of sight and just remain there with everyone else warming their hands. But if it looks, again, to the naked eye that what he does isn't that big of a deal, consider the enormity of what he's done. I mean, in one sense, what the Sanhedrin are doing is far worse. It's a far greater sin, and what they're doing is planning to kill Jesus. But think about who Peter was. Peter was called by Jesus, was chosen by him, was poured into for three years by Jesus. Peter was... Welcomed into the inner circle of Peter, James and John. In fact, in that inner circle of, of all the apostles, Peter was made the leader. If you consider if you consider the people who were alive and in the flesh when Jesus was ministering for three years, I'm not sure that there was a human being you could make the argument maybe for John, but I'm not sure there was a human being alive who had been loved more by jesus than the apostle peter think of all the love the time the attention that jesus poured out on him and in that sense this sin of denial seems so much worse than what these men who already hated him are doing you know i thought about it this week and christian i i ask you that this morning is that you Do you feel like Peter this morning? Perhaps you wonder, perhaps you wonder, even as you sit here, how you could have allowed such little temptation as you face this week to cause you to walk away from the Lord who has poured so much into you. In a moment, in the face of one little question, Peter denied it all. Why? Why? Sin. It's what sin is, right? Sin is rebellion against a God. And for some, for the atheist, sin is proclaiming, I don't believe in God and I hate Him. And for others, for those like Peter and like us who have been chosen by God and redeemed by God and loved by Jesus, sin is proclaiming along with the hymn writer, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And while Peter is walking away and denying Christ inside, there are other questions being asked. Now when we look at verses 19 and 20, we see these questions going on with Jesus and we have to understand that this trial was completely illegal. There was nothing uh, righteous or legal about this trial. Everything that went on that night was totally against the rules of the day. Trials were not supposed to happen at night. That's exactly when this is happening. The, the prosecuting evidence was supposed to be presented by witnesses. In fact, the, 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 the person who was being, uh, you know, prosecuted or, or being brought forward, the accused He he was not supposed to be made to incriminate himself at all. He was presumed innocent until proven guilty by evidence. It was not the responsibility of the accused to, to somehow prove or proclaim his own innocence. In fact, witnesses were supposed to be interrogated, not the defendant. And witnesses for the defendant were supposed to be brought forward first before witnesses against him. None of these things happened. Furthermore, the the person on trial was never supposed to be touched physically at all. We'll see that gets broken in a few minutes. Every one of those rules was broken in this travesty of justice. And so Jesus is now all alone, and we see here in in verses 19 to 20 that, that he's questioned primarily about two things. He's questioned about his disciples, and he's questioned about his teaching. First, it seems Annas wants to know who his disciples are. He wants Jesus to name names. Who are your followers? Presumably so that eventually they all can be rounded up as well and brought to justice. Notice that Jesus doesn't even address that first issue. He doesn't say anything. How interesting, how amazing that even after being abandoned by all of them, even after being, having one of his closest 12 turn him over to the authorities, even after having his closest denying him three times, even after all of that, Jesus still protects his sheep. Even to the end, he is the good shepherd. He loves them to the end. He doesn't even say anything about that. As for his teaching, notice what Jesus does. He doesn't repeat his teaching. They're asking him about his teaching. He doesn't say, well, here's everything that I've said. Essentially, he remains silent on that point. And what he reminds them is that his teaching was never in secret. It was always out in the open. He basically says, lots of people know what I taught. Go ask them it seems that in his own way, he's doing two things. First of all, he is, in his own way, reminding them of the legalities of what they should be doing. It's almost like he's trying to keep them from sinning. Guys, you shouldn't be asking me this. You should be asking others what I taught and interrogating them. But deeper than that, He's fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah 53 said, he was oppressed and he was afflicted and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. One New Testament scholar says this, from our standpoint, we might perhaps be inclined to regard Jesus's answer as uncooperative. It's not. Jesus is not refraining from any attempt to help the high priest or to let him know what he stood for. He is making the point that the high priest is not proceeding in the correct legal form. It was his duty to produce witnesses. Jesus is saying, if it's your duty to produce witnesses, that shouldn't be difficult at all. All you need to do is step outside and ask pretty much anyone out there and they can tell you what I've taught. Why are you asking me? As if the questioning of Jesus wasn't demeaning enough, John tells us that it got worse. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, is that how you answer the high priest? The restraint that Jesus shows here to me is remarkable. As I mentioned last week, the man who strikes him with his hand is at that moment, being sustained by the Lord Jesus Christ. That man is given his life and his every breath by the Lord Jesus. And he reaches out and probably with the back of his hand, possibly even with a club, smacks Jesus in the face to have someone that you have made and that you are lovingly and graciously sustaining. Have hit you in the face disrespectfully and have you not retaliate when you have all the power of God at your fingertips. It's it's almost inconceivable. And yet Jesus stood there and took it. The irony that this man, while trying to defend the honor of Caiaphas the high priest, would smack the high priest the Lord God in the face, the irony. And notice Jesus' answer. His answer, as one scholar says, is filled with self-control and dignity. He says, if what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If I'm wrong, prove it. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? They have no answer for him. How many times, when Jesus was in a verbal battle with these guys, did he trap them? Did he give them a question for which they had no answer? And he does it one final time. They have no answer for him. They know what they're doing is illegal. He's proven that what they're doing is illegal. He's showing that what he has said and done is true. And yet in their deep sin, rather than repent of their wrongdoing, rather than fall at his feet and call him Lord, they take him bound further to Caiaphas and later to Pontius Pilate for the death sentence that they have already predetermined is going to happen. And John returns us at the end to the courtroom scene happening outside. Do you see how John, of all the Gospels, has presented uh, these denials of Peter. He continues to go back and forth, showing us the contrast of what was going on inside the courtyard or courtroom and what was going on inside the courtyard. Peter has already denied Jesus once, he's already lied, and now he's standing by the fire and trying to stay as incognito as possible, and then notice someone else asks him the exact same question that the servant girl at the door asks, even phrased the same way. Somebody else comes up to him and says, hey, wait a second, Uh, you're not also one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. Now, how horrible do you think Peter felt after that first denial? I think it crushed him inside. I think even walking away from that servant girl and denying the one that he loved, the one who had come there for, crushed him. Peter had sworn earlier that he would defend Jesus to the death. And so when he so casually replied, I am not, to a servant girl, I would imagine he felt terrible. Why does he do it then again? The same question. If he felt so bad the first time, why double down? Well, have you ever noticed, Christian, how the same sin often becomes easier and easier to commit once you've given in the first time? Once you've given in the first time. Have you ever noticed that that sin left unchecked? That sin that you keep going back to not only becomes easier, but also grows more deviant in nature. Think about how sin manifests itself. The the Christian man who ends up in a long affair probably didn't begin there. Probably began with a conversation he shouldn't have had. The compulsive liar began with one. What do you suppose Peter was planning on doing that night? I mean, do you think Peter woke up that day or, or even as they headed to the garden, do you think he said to himself, I know what I'll do tonight. I'll deny my Lord three times. It wasn't what he was planning on doing. He was planning on dying for Jesus if need be. Fast forward mere hours and he's denying that he even knows the Lord. And we see here that the questions intensify. One of the servants of the high priest a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off. So now Peter's facing this guy and he said, hey, wait, didn't I see you in the garden with him? The other gospel writers tell us that other people were recognizing his accent. Hey, wait, you sound like a Galilean. You've gotta be one of his. The intensity kept ramping up. And the gospel writers tell us that that Peter's quick and initial, I am not, to the servant girl has now become uh, vehement denials where he is calling down curses upon himself. I don't even know the man. How greatly it's all changed in the matter of moments. And then it happened. We know the story. The rooster crowed. John doesn't tell us, but Luke gives us another interesting detail. He says that when the rooster crowed, Jesus, who has been beaten who has been spit upon, who has been mocked, now turns and looks at Peter. Can you imagine that? What what did Peter feel at that moment? When I was in Israel, I stood in what would have been that courtyard. And they had a model there of what it used to look like. And you could see how Peter could have seen Jesus through what were windows in the wall as he was looking in. And to have your Lord turn and look you in the eyes. What did Jesus look like having been repeatedly hit and spat upon? Peter looked into the eyes of his Lord. He remembered how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Luke says, Peter went out and wept bitterly. I just want to close by asking you this question because it was a question that I asked myself this week. Christian, can you relate to Peter this morning? Because I know I can. I know I can. See, what we see all throughout this account is the absurdity of sin. We see the hatred of the religious leaders and we see the failure of Peter the Apostle. But what we also see in this text, the glorious thing that we see is the remedy for sin. Because as Peter, the sinner, is unfaithfully and sinfully declaring boldly, I am not. The Gospel writers tell us that inside there was a faithful Savior who loved Peter to the end. And Mark tells us, John doesn't tell us, but Mark says the high priest stood up in the midst after Jesus had been silent and he said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? Jesus remained silent. And the high priest pointedly asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And rather than saying, I am not, Jesus said, I am. In the face of what he was going to go, knowing where this would lead him, he boldly said, I am. And furthermore, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And at that answer, the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving death. The man outside in the courtyard avoided death that night. By failing, the man inside the courtroom led himself to death by being faithful for the man outside. We sung earlier, and I hope you can see in this text what we sung earlier, Christian, What love could remember no wrongs we have done. Omniscient, all knowing, He counts not their sum. Thrown into a sea without bottom or shore, our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam. What Father so tender is calling us home. He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. What kindness and riches He lavished on us. His blood was the payment. His life was the cost. We stood beneath a debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, but His mercy is more. Let's pray. Father, thank You for reminding us of the faithfulness of our Lord. Father, thank you that even in the face of such horrible denials and abandonment, in the face of mocking and in the face of abuse, our Savior stood firm to the end for us. We thank you for all that he did, and we pray that you would help us today and always to live in light of that. In Jesus' name, amen.